0: architects of bail-in deposit theft behind RBA power grab and Assange's persecution is all about protecting lies. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 8th of February, 2024. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director, Robbie Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Alisa. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, the real agenda behind RBA independence. Mm. It's to make uh, the RBA completely beholden to international financial authorities.
1: So nobody can stop them when they order your deposits to be sold.
0: That's right. Among other things. Uh, and then we're going to uh, update things on the on Assange's case. There's upcoming events that we need people to get along in terms of supporting his final appeal against ext- extradition coming up soon.
1: And Assange, Bill, because uh, Assange's whole work, the, uh, the, the Assange that everybody knows, has been about. Uh, exposing lies to the truth mm. and we're going to we've got a couple of lies that we're going to debunk today as well
0: mm, yes as context for that uh, now we have a couple of updates before we get into the main show but don't forget to hit the like button subscribe if you're not already a subscriber and ring the notification bell when you do so that we'll be able to alert you of any new material new shows coming out Um, share it as widely as you can on social media, make a comment below, it all helps to get the word out, get more people following uh, our messaging here. And also, please donate if you can to support everything that we're doing. You can find a link in the information box below.
1: Yeah, that includes, um, there's a hearing in the uh, bank closures inquiry in South Australia in uh, a few weeks that we're going to that. Uh, then there's a sitting of Parliament at the end of the month, we're going to that. Um, and then there's another hearing uh, mid-March uh, over in Western Australia. Tom Price actually, that's going to be quite a haul, we're going mm-hmm. to that. We're, we're, you know, we're responsible for this inquiry, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're determined that it's going to be a successful inquiry, that's why we're quite hands-on on this. And as, um, as the chairman of the committee knowledge when we testified in December, the, 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 he, he thought it was worthwhile noting that the Citizens Party's participation is entirely funded by the Citizens Party. Not, we're not getting government funding to do this, um, and that that comes from our supporters. So, yes. um, any help you can give us is very valuable.
0: Now, on uh, our banking campaigns, there's some interesting updates. Uh, the issue of bank closures and cash is getting a lot of attention.
1: Which yes. Is good. Yes. Well, uh, it's. There's, a, there's been enormous amount of attention this year. So in the last week I've been on a whole bunch of interviews including um, I'm becoming a bit of a regular on 6PR in Perth uh, with Ollie Peterson and 5 um, aa in Adelaide with Matthew Pantelis. Um So they like and what, what used to happen, Elisa, was we would put out a press release on, on an issue mm. on, on the very late on the latest news to do with this bank closure stuff. And they'd respond to the press release and say, can we interview? Now they're not waiting for press releases. They're calling. So there's something happens, and they say, "Who are we going to call?" Yeah. Bankbusters, Citizens Party. So they call up and say, "Can we interview you on this?" Uh, so yeah, and and this relates to things we talked about already, like the um, the Bank West closures in in Western Australia, where some poor guy in had, in Latham had to drive 130 kilometres to withdraw 300 dollars in cash, and he was wasn't allowed to. Uh, and Bank West is going fully digital. Um, in the case of Adelaide. The Commonwealth Bank is closing the Rundle Mall branch, and Rundle Mall is an incredibly busy—it's the busiest place in Adelaide. Eight hundred thousand people go through Rundle Mall a week. As if that's not a patronised branch, um, but they're they're closing it. So they wanted to, to uh, talk about that. Um, and the the, the uh, Matthew Pantelis, the the uh, the host of the show, he opened with um, quite a good screed about. What needs to be imposed upon the banks as conditions? And I said to him in the interview, we'll put an interview link to the interview below. I said to him, look, you need to make that as a submission mm. to this inquiry because, um, just to remind viewers, in- submissions are open again until the 29th of February, in- the end of this month. Um, and if you, if it hasn't dawned on you, 29th of February is because it's a leap year, mm. right? This is only four February's uh, one in four February's has a 29th, so it's this month. Um, and you need, and we need this, the viewers to help us spread the word on that as well. There's there's lots of closures happening. Mm. Everybody who's upset about it, get them to make a submission. So you must make a submission. Let's mm. let's for the rest of the month flood this with submissions. So um, I was able to make that point. And yeah. You and know, he called. He up.
0: actually Pantelis actually advocated for yeah. a postal bank in his little screed. No, he, he did.
1: He did as one of the solutions.
0: Mm. And then. Um, Bob Catter had a couple of things to say, which was in the media yesterday about cash, which was oh, interesting.
1: There's, there's nobody like him, is there? No. The great, the great, the, the truly great, the legend, the, the, the man, the myth, the legend, Bob Catter. So Bob goes to, I've been to this cafe in Parliament. And there's a very big cafe where all the, all the political staffers and politicians go to. And it's all digital. And they've got it set up. And their excuse is oh, it needs to be a bit of a conveyor line here um, because to get everyone through. So no flies on Bob, though, because he's not in North Queensland. If he was in North Queensland, there'd be flies on him. (laughs) (laughs) Bob goes this week to pay um, for his lunch, and he pulls out a $50 note, and they wouldn't take it. He said, you've got to take it. It's legal tender. Hmm. And now, uh, as it happens, the law doesn't oblige them to take it, but it is legal tender. They should take it. They were so insistent at first on not taking it. They were going to let him have his lunch for free. Mm. And Bob refused. He made him take it. And eventually the manager came along and agreed to take the cash. And then Bob took it to the chamber and raised this with the Speaker. Now, the way Parliament works is, this is interesting, the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, they actually have total authority, total those, those individuals, total power over everything that happens in that building.
0: Now, this was an easy
1: fix the Speaker of the House um, Milton Dick said all right the cafe has to accept cash <laughs> so this is a good victory yeah. for the you know he's got he got as we Richard and I talked about last week he got the Reserve Bank doing the, the, the PR for the banks coming up with all these studies that show oh, you know less cash use we're going cashless etc no 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 there's a bigger fight back than that garbage PR and Bob's Bob Kat is an example of it so good mm. on you Bob. Be like Bob.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Be more like Bob. Now, um, the final announcement is clear your calendars for the 14th and the 21st of February at 8.30pm because Channel 7 will be screening over two sessions. um, Mr Bates versus the post office.
1: Absolutely. So we, we discussed this the other week. Great, great, great show. It's still causing all sorts of political earthquakes in the UK. We need to get as many people to watch this as possible. Channel 7's trailer for it, mm. and if we've got time, yeah. we'll put it up, um, actually shows you Channel 7 made sure they got this show because they've seen how to, what a big impact it's had in the UK. So we need to get everyone here to watch it so that we can then make the political lessons from it stick in Australia, especially as relates to the crisis that Australia Post is in and what, what Australia Post is doing to the equivalent of these poor people in the UK that went to jail and in, in Australia they're the licensees. I'm going to interview um, the licensed post office group as part of this. We're going to put up an interview so they can tell their story and see, because they're the ones who brought it to me. Look, we see all these parallels right? Mm. And that's shocking that yeah, every Australian should be absolutely flabbergasted when they see this show and, and wow. then think, hang on, there's 2,850 small business licensees around Australia running post offices, I know my local one probably, and that person feels that that show in the UK is similar to their plight. And that's shocking, and it's Mm -hmm. gotta be addressed. And we've got a solution. Now, we we can't change the attitude of Australia Post, but what we can do is fix the revenue problems at Australia Post, and in so doing, also fix the banking problems in Australia. Mm -hmm. Start a postal bank. It'll serve every community. There's 4,000 post offices in Australia. It'll serve every community, And the revenue from banking will actually support the delivery of postal services and the incomes of those licensees, et cetera, Mm -hmm. right? And make the system work. It's a beautiful solution. Who wouldn't want it? (laughs) The private banks. That's who wouldn't want it. And so when you you have an opportunity like this, this is going to get attention. Let's make sure it gets attention. Mm -hmm. Tell your local MP this week, call them up. And say, or, or email and say, you must watch Mr Bates versus the post office on Channel 7 on the 14th and 21st of February. And just hammer everybody, especially your local MP, and let's make this stick.
0: And share the link to the promo for the video around on social media if you can. Yep. Um, great. Okay, now on to our first topic, which intersects all these issues. Architects of bail-in deposit theft behind RBA power grab. Now, of course, we're talking about the big issue of the day, which is that as a result of the independent RBA review, the Reserve Bank, uh, our Treasurer Jim Chalmers wants to give away the government's, not just his power, but overall time, wants to give away the government's authority to have any say in what the Reserve Bank of Australia does. Yep. Now, this is a really important Issue because of what Australians are going through at the moment with the record number of interest rate rises that we've seen by the RBA in the name of fighting inflation. So we want to give a bit of a backdrop first before we get into the guts of the story. And remember,
1: uh, just for the figures you're about to give, this, this is the burden, the actual burden on households mm. who didn't cause the inflation... They're the ones that the RBA is punishing yes. to reduce the inflation. They didn't cause it. The RBA caused it. Mm-hmm. But they're punishing these households. And this is why we say this power yeah. by Chifley was invented for this time. Yes. So the government can say, listen, you academic, technocratic, disconnected bastards, you're not going to crush the life out of households around Australia just to meet your inflation targets. There's yep. other ways to do it. You're Because... Michelle Bullock says we only have one tool. No, she's lying. There's other ways to do it. Therefore, we, the government who represents the people, we're now telling you you're not going to do it. In fact, you're going to rate. You're going to you're going to reduce rates, and you're going to provide relief to those households because of everything to do with the cost of living. Mm. Nothing um, c- it compares to the burden of these interest rate rises.
0: And that is the very nature of the doctrine of austerity, is literally robbing from the poor to give to the rich, is you crush the people to draw money from them to keep the global financial system afloat, which really should be junked. Yeah, financial stability, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, So we've got some figures on the that crushing impact on mortgage holders. Firstly, I want to reference an article that came out today in the Sydney Morning Herald sh- showing that mortgage holders are facing much greater inflation than anybody else, like retired people or whatever. Um, ABS data, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, shows effective inflation rate for workers, with, which generally are the people yep. with uh, mortgages, at 6.9%, so not the headline rate of whatever, 4 something, Uh, but 6.9%, and it was 9% in September, Mm -hmm. mind you, they noted, in the September quarter, so it's still nearly 7%, and Shane Wright from the Sydney Morning Herald said this, one of the main reasons for that is the Reserve Bank, and he went on to say that since December 2020, when the official cash rate was at 0.1%, the price of mortgage interest on working families has climbed by 109%
1: and there's a there's a chart here from the article at least that we can display which shows the top 3 items in the economy that have increased in price that is that which we measure as if, you know mm. which is the cost of living yeah. right and the number one by far look at the middle one is interest rate increases but how can interest how can the burden of interest rate increases go up while the rba says inflation's going down mm. because the the burden of interest rate increases is not included in the consumer price index that measures inflation. Yep. So they can pour it on. They can it's, you, those old medieval torture things where you put weights on the on the subject and you just you just screw more and more and more down on them. That's what they're doing to workers, and their screams don't measure in the inflation rate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? This is fraud. Inflation is supposed to be about cost of living. Yep. And they are making the cost of living worse.
0: Now, you talked to Martin North about this from Digital Finance Analytics to try to get a measure of exactly how much is being extra, is being siphoned out of the population to keep this financial bubble afloat per year. Well, this is Just from increased interest rate payments.
1: Exactly. So because, look, just preface, interest rates needed to be normalised. Yeah. The cash rate of 0.1% was rubbish, right? It needed to be normalised. But what we experienced was the RBA raising rates at the fastest clip in history, right? And this was just to, regardless of the burden on people, right? So Martin North did the calculations. What, and the, calc- the figure we're about to give is what all the indebted households in Australia collectively yeah. are paying per year, just from uh, uh, um, over and above what they were paying in 2021, mm. just from interest rate increases, mm. and it's shocking. It is $49.52 billion extra for mortgaged owner occupied homes, $49.52 billion extra, and mortgage uh, for mortgage investors a lot of whom are also, I'm not that sympathetic to investors per se, but a lot of them are just householders too who have yeah. been talking to becoming investors, an extra $20 billion there. So $70 billion extra just in interest payments are coming out of the indebted households of Australia. And compare that figure to what the government is touting as its cost of living tax cuts to give you relief, and what do they add up to a year? $20 billion. So it doesn't compare. Mm. What they're allowing the RBA and the banks to do to extract this pound of flesh from households um, completely dwarfs all the relief, et cetera, that they're providing.
0: Mm, Exactly. And the mortgage stress, according to Martin's latest figures, are at record levels at 50.5%. Rental stress is up to 73.5%. And part of that is from the fact that these These investors. investors... are having to pay fork out so much more for interest rate payments on the mortgage that they're paying, so they're charging the renters more.
1: And it explains why you have these rental crises in places like Perth and Brisbane, because Mm. even though Perth and Brisbane property prices are not at the same level as Melbourne and Sydney, the burden on the investors who are negatively geared, they can't afford these investment properties anyway, they've, they've been whacked so hard with these, they've had to put pass them on, mm. and interest rate. Uh, sorry, in, uh, rents have gone through the roof. It's it's unbelievable how bad it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's good that, uh, as people might have heard in the headlines late last week, premiers of three states have demanded, and this was of course ahead of the RBA's interest rate decision on Tuesday, um, Stephen Miles from Queensland, Jacinta Allen from Victoria and Roger Cook from WA. All Labor. All Labor, all Labor uh, premiers demanded that the Reserve Bank start cutting interest rates to take the pressure off households, which is the way that they, a number of them put it. That's good. Uh, However, it's not aimed at the right, as we said in our uh, lead article in the Australian Alert Service this week, as you wrote, it's not aimed at the right
1: person because... They belled the wrong cat. Well, because here's a... Before... I mean... The timing, I was really impressed with the timing, though, because I don't know if they follow federal politics, these state premiers, <laughs> but they rightly called for the RBA to cut rates. Mm. And and I'm thinking, hang on, your state premiers, especially you, Stephen Miles, the premier for Queensland, your Labor colleague in your own state, mm. Jim Chalmers, is the treasurer. And right now, under the law... He has the power to order the RBA to do exactly what you're calling for. He has the power, Mm -hmm. but he's giving it away. Right now. He's giving, he's in the process of ramming a bill through that will give it away, yet yeah, you are calling for this thing to be done, Mm. and you're asking the RBA to do it. Whereas now is the time for you to be demanding Jim Chalmers not remove these powers, but use these powers.
0: And it... The Australians report on this, Patrick Commons, actually. Well, he actually said, he said, this shows the growing appetite of premiers to break the convention that political leaders respect the independence of the RBA and avoid giving advice on monetary policy.
1: The only reason (laughs) i groaned is that the... It probably wasn't him, but whoever the sub-editor or whatever of this article was. the headline. The headline. They called it... The Australian editors called what the premiers were doing bullying... Yeah, the RBA <laughs> bullying. Now, this tells you everything you need to know about Murdoch, right? Murdoch is Murdoch is every small business person and every blue collar worker's best friend, and he'll he'll side with you on all these cultural things that the mm. the Sky News crowd and whatever like to whip up, and you know all the all the woke stuff. And you'll you'll think Murdoch's your best friend, but when it comes to economic policy, that bastard and his media machine worldwide. They, they sponsored every bit of evil economic policy that has destroyed Australia as an economy, the neoliberalism, the privatisation, the deregulation, the, the, the deindustrialization of our manufacturing, etc. Murdoch actually participated in these foreign think tanks that came to Australia. He funded them, like the Centre for Independent Studies and the Institute of Public yep. Affairs that wrote these policies to gut our country. And here he's doing it again weighing in to protect the poor RBA and the the international banking network that it serves from the demands of the people for relief. Mm. That's the real Rupert Murdoch. Forget all the other stuff. That's the real Murdoch media right there. They are evil.
0: Now, the opposition Treasury spokesman, Angus Taylor, who was cited in the article, was just as bad as Chalmers... Because
1: of course they go to these private schools and they get a brain transplant.
0: <laughs> and he, so he demanded that Jim Chalmers quote stand up to the Queensland Premier and stop him jawboning the RBA. How
1: dare an elected <laughs> politician? Mm. How dare an elected politician? Yeah. So tell the unelected technocrats at the RBA what to do. Both
0: sides are completely on the same page on this, but um, the exactly cor- the exact correct response did come from a. Member of Parliament and that's Senator, Green Senator Nick McKim we will put these tweets up on the screen because on the 2nd of February, commenting on what the Premier's had to say, he said Jim Chalmers has the power to overrule the RBA on interest rates under Section 11 of the RBA Act. Instead of using this power, the Treasurer is seeking to give it away in upcoming legislation. And again, he tweeted, inflation is coming down. It's clear the RBA went too far with rampant rate rises last year. Will Jim Chalmers use his power under Section 11 to cut rates and deliver urgent relief to renters and mortgage holders? Then on the 6th of February, following the rate decision, which, of course, the RBA kept rates stable, he said, given the RBA's poor decisions, Jim Chalmers needs to use his powers under the Reserve Bank Act and bring rates down. So he is hammering this, which is very, very good,
1: and, and, of course, it, it's not surprising coming from Nick McKim because Nick McKim has been one of the three senators over the last few years yes. has been, who's been belling the cat, yeah. to use that term again, on the fact that the RBA has powers it should be using. And the other one is Senator Jared Rennick and the other one, and the third one is uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts. Um, uh, so you've got a Liberal, One Nation and Green. Because, look, let me tell you something, out, and Jared Rennick is a pretty unique Liberal, outside of the major parties... The, I don't care what your stripes are, Mm. um, in political terms. What what I just, in my direct experience at least, it's the people who are not in the major parties, and that includes the Greens. They're not beholden to the vested interests that run the financial system, like the Liberals always were, Mm. and Labor sold out to. Right, and so those guys find themselves on the same page. And Nick McKim said exactly the right thing.
0: And you referenced McKim and other senators challenging the RBA during Senate estimates, and I want to come to that now because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the submission that the Citizens Party made last week to this parliamentary inquiry into the RBA review and the government's endorsement of that to change the governing legislation of the Reserve Bank Act.
1: Before you go through that, though, I want a disclaimer. I think what you're about to say is somewhat speculative because... I think you're defensive about the fact that I've accused you for the last month of being the reason this the, Jim Chalmers is going to remove this power because <laughs> until this, until Elisa wrote this submission where the no, previous
0: submission, the one to the RBA review, yeah, but
1: this mean? what what Elisa has answered in this submission, which she's about okay. to go through, is the question of where did this idea come from because until we established where we we know where it came from now, but until we did, it was a big mystery because we couldn't tell. How this, submit, how this proposal to remove the, uh, the, the Treasurer's overrule power came about because in all the submissions to the RBA review, only yours <laughs> from last year, only yours had actually even identified the power and named it and called for it to be used. And so I've been well, joking it's Elisa's fault this is happening. She's proven I'm wrong. And I,
0: I don't think anyone was really conscious of it, of that existence of that power in current politics.
1: Probably. Well, um, Jane Hume was carrying on watching like she was Well, wasn't. she
0: was, but that was after it was raised by Nick McKim That's and right. other senators. Um, I only came across it looking at uh, the whole question of inflation and how the RBA could fight inflation and going back to look at the statements on the conduct of monetary policy and how over time... Because the RBA was always meant to direct monetary policy in regard to three things, but the two fundamental things were full employment and inflation, and the third was the um, well-being of all the people of Australia, which they're legislating away now as well, Um, but I was looking at the course of events where over time employment was basically given the flick by convention, not in any formal capacity, so that they just decided to have no regard for the employment of Australians and just fight inflation. And that was being done in the name of financial stability, which we'll talk about a bit more because we'll just go through a bit of what's in the submission.
1: No, 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 just to be clear, I was joking about the disclaimer. Um, We have now proven where this came from. And this is... This is the big story of the day and it's why we have to fight it.
0: Yeah, well, so that's what I was going to say in regard to the senators from Greens, One Nation and the Liberal National Party who began pushing the Reserve Bank during Senate Economic Legislations Committee estimates discussions um, on why the RBA could print money to funnel into the banks through quantitative easing, but they couldn't print money... To, for instance, put into building infrastructure, they yep. could inflate the housing bubble. That was fine. Don't worry about inflation when it comes to pumping money out yep. into housing and encouraging people to buy houses. You know, go out there. Our prime ministers and our treasurers were saying, go and buy a house. You know, buy a second house, buy a Get third house. That's all. Inflation was never an issue when it mm-hmm. came to any of that. But um, when it came to the issue of Um, putting money into the actual economy and the productive sector. The head of the RBA, Philip Lowe, used to go on about how productivity wasn't good enough. But when these senators challenged him, why can't the RBA direct credit into the real economy, which would help fight inflation by increasing productivity and getting the economy moving, putting people to work, paying their taxes, etc.? they always bowed out and said, oh, well, I mean, ultimately, Michelle Bullock was the one that said, look, if the government asked us to do such a thing, we would have to have a conversation about that. And, of course, Section 11 power is what would come up in that case because that Section 11 refers to, in the event of a dispute between the RBA and the government over monetary policy and how to direct it, the government prevails. But um, what I wanted to mention is that it was... March 2021, when these senators started to hammer the RBA on this question, by September of that year was when the International Monetary Fund and the OECD started pummeling the government, we need to have a review. Other countries have had a review of their monetary framework... Uh, And these authorities, particularly the IMF, started pushing that the RBA and its powers had to be subject to a review. So that's when it started. Um, But what we have in our report is a timeline of events which show the broader scope of this because one of the things that struck me about this process of reviews is that, of course, New Zealand had been subjected to a review in 2017 ahead of ours. And in terms of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand review, it had been recommended in the IMF's financial sector assessment of New Zealand in May 2017 in the context of bail-in policy. And, of course, New Zealand had the most explicit bail-in regime in the world. We've used, we put up the graph that we've used a, a zillion times on this show where it actually says... Shows you know how people's deposits actually says it in the text there on that graphic can be taken yep. to recapitalize banks. But as explicit as it was, the IMF at that point, May 2017, started pushing for it to be a proper legislated regime, um, starting off with implementing deposit insurance because New Zealand had yeah, no yeah. deposit insurance, and the IMF said they were worried that. Uh, that could cause a panic. Bailing could cause a panic if there was no insurance for people's deposits. And
1: that, and that's that's the IMF being true in a sense to its concern that it shares with the Bank for International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board mm-hmm. that financial stability comes first, trumps all other concerns. So what they... Because New Zealand was explicitly this bailing regime, such so as they even published that cartoon. Um, but if people knew about... And most people in New Zealand did not know they were subject to that bail-in regime, mm. right? And But if people did, the IMF recognised, well, hang on, if, if banks start looking wobbly and the people in New Zealand know that yeah. the banks... that ..they could pull their money out... That's ..and right. that would cause the crash, so you need deposit insurance, yes, right? Yes, exactly.
0: But by June 2019, when the review was in full flow, uh, one of the consultation documents for the RBNZ review made explicit the fact that deposit insurance was designed to smooth the way for a broader statutory bail-in power. Um, And it said that that would, quote, ensure that the Reserve Bank has broad enough powers to resolve a failing bank, such as a power to, quote, bail-in unsecured debt to recapitalise a bank. And then if you look at the IMF consultation that just was concluded last year for New Zealand they refer to the Deposit Takers Act which enshrines this new deposit insurance um, legislation and they say that that Deposit Takers Act quote, removes the requirement for ministerial consent to issue bail-in directions, thereby removing the current high threshold for using this tool to take corrective action. Because see, even as explicit as New Zealand's deposit uh, bail-in regime was, it was a ministerial directive to use it. So the minister had to approve it, and so as the IMF went on to say, also in that Deposit Takers Act, it included an amendment to the Public Finance Act 1929 to address a gap in the current arrangements enabling the government to act quickly and use public funds in a financial crisis.
1: So, well, can I just can I just make the point? So we're talking about New Zealand 2017, etc. Yeah. Um, bail in, just quickly was a product of the 2008 crash. And governments like the Rudd government were part of the G20 and the G20 con, you know, convened in, in in Britain. They said, what can we do about this? And the G20 um, appointed the Bank for International Settlements subsidiary, the Financial Stability Board, to come up with a system that would supposedly avert future bailouts by governments mm. but keep financial stability. And that's where the idea of bail-in came from. They come up with this idea, well... The way to if a bank starts to get wobbly, we'll take the deposits because they are liabilities of the bank. We'll and take certain the, bonds and certain bonds, right? So we'll take the bank's liabilities because um, if you're you know in accounting terms, assets equals liabilities and equity, right? And and a, and a finance, and any kind of company is broke if the assets are lower than liabilities. So they basically said we need to come up with a way we can give a we can. Do a haircut to the liabilities,
0: shuffle things around, and reduce a them bit.
1: to the reduce them, and we're just going to have to take people's money, mm. and um, maybe give it back eventually, but otherwise, no guarantees. Just take well, people's some money, of it. and this was bail in. Of course, it was first used in Cyprus in 2013. Now, from the beginning, though, Elisa, when we started looking at this and exposing it, we saw that these bodies, like the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, the Financial Stability Board, were insisting that this must be accompanied by total independence of the regulator. Yes, Slash, depending on who the regulator is, but the the Reserve Bank is part of the regulators, right? They are the chair of the Council of Financial Regulators in Mm -hmm. Australia. And they're insisting there must be total independence because they knew if you have a situation where elected politicians have any say over whether their constituents' money is going to be stolen, Mm -hmm. they might blanch at that.
0: Exactly. And you need to have
1: technocrats... (laughs) who will not blanch at that yeah. and will happily steal their money in the name of financial stability. And that was a theme from, you can see it in the documentation, from 2010, 2011 onwards, yeah. and now what we're seeing, what you've gone through in New Zealand, mm-hmm. is them, in actually the case of the Reserve Bank, their equivalent of our RBA, saying, this is how your system has yeah. to work.
0: So, So after, less than a year after New Zealand started that review of its RBNZ in May 2017, Australia in February 2018 passed our first attempt at a bail-in law and that gave the power to APRA to intervene in a financial crisis to put a bank into well, by, the way, by the time
1: by the time people are watching this it'll be the 6th oh, the the, anniversary. The anniversary of yeah. that the Valentine's right. Day. Yep. Val- Valentine's Day next week I think is, is that Wednesday next week will be the uh, will be the 6th anniversary of the passage of that law.
0: Now The the IMF weren't happy though with that and a year later they came back in several different reports which are uh, highlighted in the uh, um, submission where they said, look, um, the mandate for APRA has to be um, turned into one top item and that's financial stability. Put that ahead of depositor protection because financial stability is number one, etc. And they said we need to end the Treasurer being being able to direct APRA and the Parliament being allowed, being able to disallow APRA's prudential standards, APRA's Mm. rulings. Um, A a further IMF technical note said that um, APRA's decisions are subject to parliamentary scrutiny and could be disallowed by the Parliament. While this can be considered part of the checks and balances in the Australian democratic process, it could potentially lead, um, skipping ahead here, to the failure of key elements of APRA's prudential framework. It could potentially limit APRA's ability to achieve its primary objectives being financial stability. And all the same period in some of these IMF technical documents, February 2019, uh, the IMF also stated that the RBA's financial stability expertise had to be honed, had to be focused on. And that's, uh, of course, the RBA now under this new legislation will be given a whole new mandate called financial stability. But if you look at the legislation, they don't even define what financial stability is. It's one sentence or a fragment of a sentence. Um, So this is what, you know, we're looking at now.
1: And and before you go on, and if anyone thinks, well, maybe financial stability is important. You don't want to have a bank runs. You don't want to have a repeat of 2008. Here's the, here's the part that gives the lie to the whole thing. The whole thing's a scam. Because from the beginning, in the post-2008 crisis period, when they were looking at this, all these international bodies and the governments had an alternative. And the alternative was bringing laws, especially a law, that would stop the banks doing the things that made them unstable in the first place. And that's what the Glass-Steagall law was. In, from 1933 to 1999, America had the most beautiful piece of regulation in the history of the world. A very simple law called Glass-Steagall, which was this. If you're a bank with deposits, you can, that, that you're holding other people's money in trust, you are not allowed to engage in speculation in the financial system like investment mm-hmm. banks do. And If you're an investment banker and you want to speculate, you want to gamble. Go your hardest, but you are not allowed to do it with deposits. It was that simple. It was mm. super easy to police, and they repealed it in 1999. The the, the gambling, so that the derivatives gamblers, these the, the people who gamble in these most exotic mm. bets, that, that, that they've made movies about the 2008 crisis about this stuff, right? So that those guys could grab the public's deposits, the American public's deposits, the Australian public's deposits, and just ramp up their gambling. And it went from, it had taken derivatives. I think the first derivatives trade was something like 1986, 87, and it took 13 or 14 years for derivatives, global derivatives trading, to go for, to grow to 100 trillion dollars. Right? Sorry, 100. Um, so it went from 14 years to go to 100 trillion dollars by 2000. That was when they repealed Glass-Steagall. And then in the next Mm. uh, five years or six years, it went from $100 trillion to $700 trillion, right? All fueled by people's deposits. And so the obvious thing after the crash, that very few organisations, I mean, we predicted it, right? The obvious thing was to bring back the law that had provided real financial stability all those years by constraining the gambling of the banks. And these masters of the universe who have come up with this scheme to make you pay for the bank's sins, refuse to do it. Do not touch the banks. Make the people wear the burden.
0: Just a final note on financial stability if you needed more evidence. For our Australian Alert Service this week, I just reviewed a paper that came out in September last year called Survival of the Biggest Large Banks and Financial Crises and, of course, they reviewed the fact that through every crisis, the big banks get bigger because they get yeah. bailed out. They <laughs> swallow up and merge they with cause the smaller it. banks. They get
1: bailed out, though.
0: So that then is a continuing, self-fulfilling cycle. And in regard to financial stability, this is the quote from the report. It says, Large banks have been at the epicentre of financial instability and risk-taking throughout history. And they look at 17 countries over 150 years. It's a really yeah. stunning data set that they've pulled together.
1: Elisa. Well, some viewers will probably even make a comment about this, so I'm getting in preempting it. But it, but it, but it's a, it's a good point to make. Now, there is a, there's a very famous um, financial expert named Professor Richard Werner, and he points out um, how the contrast to everything we're talking about is the way Germany's banking system mm. developed around these small banks, yeah. right, all over the place. Every town had its own bank, kind of thing, and. Now they've got some big banks as well, like Deutsche Bank. But the, but but the real strength of Germany's financial system was these small banks. And one of the things that makes it strong is if one small bank gets into trouble, it doesn't set off a knock-on effect with all the others, right? And because they're local banks, so they don't get into trouble because they're serving the local the local community. It's a much better form of financial stability than than what they've acknowledged in this report you just talked about. Mm. Um, we need. What we want to do with the Postal Bank is bring back a government bank, right, to operate through post offices, which will be very strong, but also encourage the small banks of Australia um, to, you know, because they're very good at providing a service, those the small banks that are in Australia, encourage them and take away all the props for the big four banks that are allowing them to just exploit people, as we're seeing.
0: Mm. Now, I neglected to mention before we move to the next topic that... Uh The one reference in the RBA reviews process, and they not only took public submissions, they held various consultations, including things like focus groups and surveys of economists and expert panel consultations, and they invited expert opinions from five or six leading economists. So, one of those economists wrote a paper in which he referenced, he didn't actually use the term Section 11. But under the subhead potential override of policy decisions, and this is uh, Professor Andrew Levin, he's from one of the Ivy League colleges at Dartmouth in the US, but he is a regular visiting scholar at the IMF, so that brings you into... And the IMF, of course, works very closely with the Financial Stability Board on all of this. They, The IMF don't do it alone. Mm. The Financial Stability Board is based at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, um, which came out of uh, the process after during and after World War II um, to create a financial, a form of financial government that would dictate decisions to all nation states around the world on such matters. So under this um, override of policy decisions subhead, Andrew Levin said that even a veiled threat could substantially undermine the central bank's statutory independence and therefore demanded that the board's monetary policy decisions should not be subject to any potential override by government officials. Um, one
1: other thing about his CV is he was on the Federal, oh yes. federal Reserve Board for mm. twenty odd years. In this period, where the Federal Reserve presided over this explosion of bank gambling in America and kept bailing them out, it was called. It was called the um, the Greenspan put. Greenspan encouraged them to. Um, the banks to speculate, and every time they get into trouble, he'd lower interest rates even further mm. to help bail them out from their own speculation. Yeah. That guy was on the board during that whole period. He's an example of the, of the mentality of, no, no, give the banks everything they want, total unbridled speculation and gambling. The people are going to pay, and we have to constrain those pesky governments, those, de- those democratically elected governments, even though we go to war and kill people in other countries in the name of democracy. No, no, no when it comes to real power, no, no. Mm. Yeah, we don't want that. But that was... Banks first.
0: But his paper was the only reference to this. There was literally, as you foreshadowed for before... You. there were Yeah, <laughs> apart from our submission, yeah. But there was no mention ahead of the review about Section 11. There was nothing in the terms of reference to that review. There was nothing in the issues paper. There was nothing in the media, nothing in the public submission and consultation process apart from those two incidences, the only thing that presaged it was the Senators pressing the RBA in the Senate. So the the threat that the Parliament, that the elected government would override the FSB and Bank for International Settlements monetary directives, that was very real. So this is why this this is going to be a big fight.
1: The the global banking dictators are saying we're taking away this power before more people... The numbers of people in the Australian Parliament demanding it be used grow enough they'd like to use it.
0: All right, so stay tuned for more on that as this (coughs) inquiry proceeds. And on to our next topic, Assange's persecution is all about protecting lies. And uh, so Julian Assange is rotting in jail because he told the truth, told truth to power and actually also threatened in a grave way um, the wars that have been accepted and which Australia has gone along with and that which are continuing to this day and threatening World War Three, nuclear World War III. Now, Assange's final appeal against the order that he be extradited will be heard in London's High Court on the 20 to 21st of February. Um, so... Two,
1: two weeks away.
0: That's a critical date. Um, now, on the 6th of February, the UN Special Rapporteur, who is an Australian, Dr Alice Jill Edwards' has actually urged the British government to halt Assange's extradition due to grave concerns about his mental health and potential exposure to torture. And the concerns about his mental health, when you see the reports, are getting obviously worse all the time because of the situation that he's in. Um, So we're going to talk about some lies to contrast to um, how the liars get treated as opposed to the truth tellers. But I want to mention that if people can get along to any of the upcoming events or support in other ways, um, we need to have a real outpouring of support for Assange in this next couple of weeks. Um, just There might be more events, you can do searches, but in Adelaide on the 13th of February is the premiere of uh, The Trustful at the Capri Cinema in Goodwood, and that's um, at 7pm.
1: And that's, a, that's an important new film. Um, that tells the Assange story, the Trust Fall.
0: Mm. And then in Melbourne on the 18th of February is a rally uh, in support of Freedom for Assange, which is also a Gaza ceasefire rally at the State Library at 12pm. And then the big event is in Melbourne, but also uh, available for people to attend online on the 9th of March. Uh, that's Night Falls in the Evening Lands, the Assange epic. And you can find more out about that on Nightfalls.info. And that's a full day event, nine till five.
1: Now, um, if you're in a position to attend that event in person, absolutely uh, do. It, you've got to register, and, and there's a there's a cover charge to to you know help pay for the event to go ahead. The Citizens Party is actually helping to sponsor that event, so um, but there's we'll, a great we'll lineup of
0: speakers. Oh, exactly! It'll be a and great day. Um,
1: uh, hosted by Mary Costikidis, um international speakers, etc. We will be there. I'll be there. You'll be there. Other people from our office will be there on the, you know, attending on the day. So if you're in any position around Australia, be in Melbourne at that time. If you're in Melbourne, definitely get organize yourself to get along on that day to to show your support and participate. But in you the can event. get
0: a ticket online. To well, that's watch the other it online. thing.
1: Make sure, if you can't get mm-hmm. a ticket online, participate online. Look, the Australian government has the the reason the Australian government. Has gone through the motions at least on Assange, is because they know they cannot ignore the enormous public support. But the public needs to keep demonstrating that support, right? And this this is a really good way to do that.
0: Now, mm. two examples you wanted to give, and in by way of contrast. Well, exactly.
1: What did Julian Assange say? Wars are started
0: by, by lies. lies.
1: Peace can peace can be achieved with the truth. Yeah. Right. That that's what motivated him, and in fact. Uh, in 2022, I was at the, an, uh, an Assange rally in Canberra in front of Parliament House. And Andrew Wilkie, and if you know Andrew Wilkie's story, he worked at the National uh, Security uh, Agency of Australia, National the Office of National Assessments. And he was one of the few people at the time of the Iraq War saw the lies and resigned in protest over them. and. He inspired the young Julian Assange, mm. and he told the story. He was at an event here in Melbourne, I think it was, and, and this white-haired guy came up to him and said, I'm, "I'm thinking I could you could use my computer skills to start a system whereby people mm-hmm. can, on an anonymously publish leaks that can expose all this stuff," and that became WikiLeaks, right? And he's been and, and they're determined to crush him for it. So, but are... We're seeing lies all the time. And there's two war fronts that we've been concerned about. The, the China, the, the people who want to start a war with China, and, of course, the, you've got this terrible situation in Israel-Gaza at the moment. Um, so the two lies that need to be mentioned that we're going to talk about. So one of them one this week was the news that the Chinese courts have sentenced a what the media called an Australian writer mm. or an Australian academic or an Australian father, mm. um, uh, Yang Jun to, to, to death by execution, but basically commuted after two years to life imprisonment. And it's a, it's a standard thing. Um, to show you how standard it is, I'll put this on the screen. I had to comment about this because they also, th- this week they also sentenced to this, exactly the same sentence, death by execution and, and committed to life imprisonment, one of the top bankers in China who was caught corruptly using his position as a banker mm. to feather his own nest. And so the media, our media was telling you to hate China because there's such brutal people doing this to an Australian. How do you feel about them doing it to bankers? (laughs) Anyway, put that aside. Um, Here's what they didn't tell you. And I I really reacted to this because Australian writer, Australian uh, father, no, no, no. First of all, he's a dual citizen. And what that means is China doesn't recognize his Australian citizenship. That's just how China operates. If you, you can you can be an Australian citizen, if you can be a Chinese Australian living in Australia and take up Australian citizenship, but if you want to keep your Chinese citizenship, China thinks you're their citizen. So that's one. Two, he's not just any writer. This man was a Chinese spy. Mm. He was a spy for China.
0: For Chinese for, military intelligence for 14 for every, years, the yeah.
1: MSS. He was their spy, right? And Then he he was stationed in Washington, and I suspect he was turned by Western intelligence agencies because then he became an anti-China person, quit Mm. the MSS, left China, etc. He became a writer. What does he write? He writes stories, crime, uh, spy Spy fiction, spy fiction, where the the hero has his name Mm. Yang and is a double agent, and. There's a Wikileaks in 2009 published a cable where the CIA was, w- was writing about this guy saying we think he is a spy because he actually says only people who know espionage should write spy novels and that's a good hint he's probably a spy, right? This is a CIA cable about him. Um, he, uh, in Australia, he's really close to the anti-China crowd who are also very close to ASIO, our spy agency, right? They are his friends in Australia, including people like uh, John Garno, who Paul Keating called out in 2019 as the man in Malcolm Turnbull's office, the ASIO plant in Malcolm Turnbull's office, who had turned Australia on this anti-China thing. Yes. And that's when Keating famously said, when, when the intelligence agencies are running your foreign policy, the nutters are in charge, <laughs> right? Um, that's who this Yang's mate, best friend in Australia is, essentially John Garno. But here's the most interesting bit. Why would this guy go back to China? He flew back to China in 2019 and got arrested. Right? Well, if an American spy defected from America and went to another country and then flew back after a while, the CIA is not just going to say, oh, good on you, mate. On your There's gonna, something's going to be done to him too, right? <laughs> but anyway, so why did he go back? This is a real curious, it's a really murky story, it's really curious. The guy who took him to the airport, he literally dropped him off at the airport. It was a friend of his, um, uh, his name is uh, Mike and uh, Ming. Sorry, uh, sorry. Why Ken Meng? This is he's from an organisation called China Free Press. Now we wrote about this in 2020. Melissa Harrison wrote this series of articles. We talked about this guy's in 2020. Um, China Free Press, which has received substantial funding from U.S. government-funded regime change agitator, the National Endowment for Democracy, and that's a CIA cutout. And Meng is also the founder of Boxen, a U.S based Chinese language publication which the Chinese government accuses of trying to organize a Tiananmen Square 2 back in 2011 a thing called the Jasmine Revolution so that man drove Yang to the airport to put him on the plane to go to China and they want us to believe I oh, was just a poor misunderstood you know persecuted Australian writer no this guy has a he's a spook every way you want to cut it um, and do not automatically assume that when the Chinese government accused someone of spying, they're lying. And the other proof of that is um, from 2019 onwards, we had this saga where the Chinese held two Canadians. Um, after Canada arrested their, uh, the, the, the founder of the daughter of Huawei at America's behest, China arrested two Canadians and accused them of spying. Eventually, China released these guys back to China, back to Canada, after Canada let the daughter of the founder of Huawei go. What's happened in the last few months? One of those Canadian guys has sued the other one for making him spy. He's admitted he was a spy. What China accused him of, he has admitted it. Do not assume that when China makes these accusations, they're making it up, right? So the Australian press, the typical warmongering press, are just lying about this. To try and use, that what they're trying to do, and if you look at it closely, the Albanese government is t- making baby steps to improve the relationship, and these people are trying to sabotage it at every turn. All mm. right, that's one. The other one is mu- is much sadder. We're running out of time, but look, there was this. When I say it's much sadder, I'm not trying to diminish what's happened to the to Yang, but you know the Israel Gaza thing is a terrible situation. You know, nearly thirty thousand civilians have died. Um, 11,000 plus children. There's a thousand children they report have had operations without anaesthetic. I mean, it's 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 totally bad. It's it's awful. And October 7 was the date of the Hamas attack, which, by the way, we're going to do more on that in the future. There's a lot of claims about that, that have been debunked. But anyway, the attack happened, and October 9 in Australia was when the the the, the um uh, pro palestine community, the Muslim community, etc., rallied it. The Opera House, um, in protest, and what they were protesting was the fact that by October nine, the Israelis had already f- started hitting back. More than four hundred Palestinians were already dead. Um, they also were upset that that you know there's terrorist attacks against Arab countries all the time. And the Western countries like Australia never put the colours of those Arab countries on their monuments. But if it's a white country or it's Israel, in this case, they, oh, we're going to put the flag, Israeli flag on the Opera House. That's what they were protesting. And people would be very familiar with there was a claim, because the media jumped on this straight away, there was a claim that the, the protesters started chanting, gas the Jews. Gas the Jews. And thanks to the hard work of some hardy investigators and one and they've proven and the new south wales police have actually come out and confirmed the footage that was released that claimed to be saying gas the jews just wasn't true it didn't say gas the jews at all it was saying where's the jews where's the jews where's the jews where's jews where's the jews where's
0: the jews
1: and the reason they were saying where's the Jews is because the New South Wales police had let them have their protest and then cleared them out and said you've got to leave because now the 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 um uh the Israeli flag is going to be played put on the Opera House and um Jewish people are going to come here mm. and so you know there's high tensions etc and some of them got upset at being asked where's the, you know they had to leave and they're saying where's the Jews where's the Jews right they weren't on a Jew hunt. Or anything like that, but this is what was twisted into the worst possible thing mm-hmm. of the juice and now it's now ex- it's now been exposed. The truth has come out of what it actually was. What wh- the reason we highlight this is, you've got to think: Why do people want to promote these kind of lies, mm-hmm. right? Why do they? Because the more they can make, in this case, in the case of Yang, the Chinese government seem like utter monsters, or in the case of uh, this gas, the juice thing, the Palestine, the, the pro-Palestine community in Australia seem like utter monsters. The more it justifies what we're doing, which is sitting back and we accuse the Chinese of genocide for sending Uyghur, young Uyghurs to TAFE College mm. to learn a trade so they don't get radicalised. We call that genocide. Mm-hmm. But we're sitting on our hands and watching the, the mass slaughter of babies and children in Gaza. And we're saying, oh, Israel has a right to defend itself. So, and and the thing that we reflect on is that if you keep having that double standard, eventually it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy because people will snap.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the rage will spill over and all sorts of things will happen. And it's up to us at these times to say, no, no, we have to fight for the truth because it's the only way that we're going to be able to identify who the bad actors are, who the good actors are achieve a a pathway to peace, and finally be able to stop Mm. this stuff.
0: So help us circulate the truth, get the alert (coughs) service, subscribe, follow the links below for more information on all of these stories and the um, various campaigns that we've mentioned and uh, things like the link to the post of a story on Channel 7 circulate.
1: Get everybody to make submissions to the RARAT committee. on Anyone who's affected by bank closures we will have the link below, make submissions.
0: Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.
1: Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens
0: Party Melbourne.